You know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. And I'm your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we assign our guests a year, and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year for us to discuss. Today is a doozy. We've been waiting for this one for a little bit. A couple of reschedulings that we finally got it to happen. We are talking with Dan Yeeman and Andy Nelson of the band Open City. Also... Many, 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 many other bands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know Dan from the likes of Lifetime, Kid Dynamite, Paint It Black. Andy's also in Paint It Black. As uh, well, yes. As well Andy as Ceremony. Ceremony, yeah. And Dark Blue. Yeah. And yeah, they've they've both been around making music. So Open City is the the current project that they work on together. So that's that's a f- absolutely killer band uh they just released a brand new song called wolf which is probably the song that i'll play leading into the interview but uh what else are we talking about today we are talking about the year 1998 and the album is the fine art of original sin by ink and dagger we also spend a lot of time talking about a lot of different bands mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really good conversation. Um, I wasn't quite sure how long we would go on Ink and Dagger, and we went pretty pretty good length. So uh, this this is a fun one. I, I'm I'm very happy that this came together. Uh, you can also hear a little bit more from us over on the Patreon. That's Patreon.com/PunkLottoPod. Uh, this week we're doing a starting five on other albums that came out in 1995. So stay tuned for that. 1998. 1998 this is starting five in 98 not a starting eight in 95 <laughs> and then you can follow us on the all forms of social media instagram facebook twitter at punk lotto pod punk lotto pod at gmail.com voicemail to a two six eight eight punk and i believe that's everything so enjoy this conversation with dan and andy
thing I'll do is ask you each to say your name just so the audiences can tell who's talking when their uh, voices start. So, uh, uh, Andy, I'll let you go first. This is Andy. <laughs> and Dan? Hey, what's up? This is Dan. <laughs> awesome. So right now we have one half of Open City, and after some schedule adjustments a couple times, actually, we have finally been able to book a time where we could all talk about a fun record. Before we get into that, though, so Open City is sort of a super group, as much as you would call this kind of band a super group. More like career musicians all working together. So you've all kind of made names in punk and hardcore scenes by playing like various projects. And naturally, it kind of makes you want makes least the listener wonder, like, how did everyone find time to start a band with like everyone in their different points in life and parts of the world country? I mean, one one could say we had no choice. (laughs) I would say that. uh the irony is that uh, I think it was originally like one of the original and I, you know, I'm interested in Andy's perspective on this cause I'm sure it's different, but one of the original premises was like, yo, we need to be in a band where everybody lives in Philadelphia and we can practice every week. I mean, I'm sure the joke was on us for even <laughs> saying that out loud uh, at some point, but, but I think that was, that was one of the original premises of the band. Yeah, it was, it was sort of born out of uh, a couple things, one of which was that like Dan and I were playing in a band painted black for a long time together. And uh, I mean, I don't want to speak for Dan, but I think uh, enjoy the, the sort of kinship of making music together. It's been pretty fruitful, both in terms of uh, the music and the friendship. But uh, due to sort of like you know, like a, a drummer who moved to California and toured all the time and just sort of like some of the other elements of, of a band that has existed for a long time. I think we were both interested in doing something that was a little more like kind of in a, in a sense casual, but also in a sense like more serious, like practicing once a week, writing together, just playing shows all the time, being, able, you know, just being able to play DIY shows in Philly and you know, if a cool band's coming to town, we could just hop on the show and play first and we'd be, you know, it'd be cool. And like with Painted Black, it was always like, you know, some so for us to play a show, it took months of figuring out schedules and that kind of thing. But of course, as Dan mentioned, that, you know, best laid plans, <laughs> yada, yada. But uh, I think one of the well, other first, it took us two years to find a singer. Well, right. <laughs> it took us years of, of I mean, we recorded a whole album without a singer. And then, yeah, and then, I don't know, whatever. But the, I think one of the other elements was that we just really wanted to play with Chris Wilson, the drummer. Yep. Um, and we had been sweating him as the pharmacist's drummer playing with Ted Leo for as long as he had been doing it. I mean, Dan and I would go see Ted play and just, like, be standing, like, next to the stage, basically as close as we could get to the drums without it getting weird. And... uh <laughs> And just with like yep. our mouths agape, just like holy fucking shit, like this this guy is like a, amazing. And uh, you know, Chris, I, I'm I'm very fond of saying this might be apocryphal, but I I think like he, I, I'm fond of saying that he only owns like three T-shirts, and it was like <laughs> Void, Econo Christ, and D Kreutzen. And yep. so through That's, various that things, was also the 
<laughs> yeah. And so through various things, both both that and then I played like in a cover band with him called TV Casualty that Dan did one of the shows with when we when we performed as Black Flag. I never thought that Chris would be down to it just he just seemed like he was, you know, like on another level from us, but out of our league. Yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, somehow Dan and I brought it up to him to be like, hey, would you ever want to do a band that sounds like the three shirts that you own? (laughs) (laughs) And and somehow miraculously he was. And so we we got to work, but it took years until we found a singer we went through probably like a half dozen people who were like regularly practicing with us and then we realized most of, them, most of them were pretty remarkable yeah all of them were i think i yeah. mean you know, in the yeah. room, right? i mean every everyone who came everyone who came to practice on a regular basis is and was remarkable yeah and have like and have continued to do remarkable things and then you know rachel was just like oh you know like we were familiar with her from her work in like a ton of New York bands and kind of like dawned on us that she had moved to Philadelphia. And we were like, what about Rachel? <laughs> yeah. But that was another one where it was like, man, if we could only get her, it would be amazing. And yeah. then somehow we did. And, 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 you know, it goes without saying that she's our favorite of any of the people that, you know, at least for this band anyway. So, yeah. But yeah, it was never really conceived of as like a side project or like a super group, kind of the opposite of both of those things, actually. I think it was it was sort of meant to be, you know, something that was a little more like serious and 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 real, but also sort of like not capitalizing on, you know, the people's names involved and that kind of thing. I'd say it was born out of a need for consistency combined with like a Christmas list of like people we would love to play with. Yeah. To speak to that thing about Chris, like we're both really big Ted Leo fans, you know, in terms of the, the him as a songwriter and and they're recorded out their discography. But like I would go we would go to see him perform and then people would be like, oh, what, what did he I was it? What did he play? I'd be like, I don't know, man. I just watched Chris play. <laughs> I don't know what I have no idea what the fuck was on the set list. So I was just like watching like our own punk rock keith moon just like go at it for like an hour (laughs) and and uh just in awe yeah chris has that that sort of like indescribable thing that like almost that very few musicians and even fewer drummers have which is just like a distinct style like he's got style for days yeah he's the best i i wish uh i wish his beautiful face was sitting on this (laughs) tranquil park staircase that we're all typing <laughs> on right now i look like a ghost on this thing because i'm outside and i'm on a swing so i'm like i'm like totally blacked out and kind of moving back and forth well i'm in a closet so oh, sick we're both, in, <laughs> we're both in weird places anyway so that's uh, the story yeah i was gonna say like the 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 idea of a super group is always kind of funny to me because like i i don't think any band that has would be called that has ever been like we're gonna start a super group with all of our famous friends you know maybe yeah. maybe that what was that one chicken foot that band <laughs> sammy hagar and like was it joe satriani and <laughs> nope no thank you uh, you might be surprised at how how depraved some of the members of the <laughs> punk punk world are but to me that shit just smacks of like marketing you know and like it's you know 
that yeah. it also backfires too because you know you're you're putting ideas into people's heads about what it's going to be and then you never get to be what you really are you know yeah yeah so one of the things about open city that whenever you first kind of came on kind of out of nowhere because i feel like the record was dropped and I'm, i assume you played philly shows but like the the greater musical scene was probably not really aware of that band but one of the things that we saw in some of the notes that you put out was that Sarah Kirsch was like a really big influence on the group. And Dylan and I are absolutely massive fans of like every band she was ever involved with. Like we, yep. we love everything she has done. Probably I'd probably call her my favorite just individual musician ever. Sam. And so what is it about her that specifically kind of plays into Open City's DNA? Well, long pause that's a hard one a lot of you know and do you want to start on this one <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to find the right words i was i let i let that pause go as long as it did because i i thought as um the guitar player i should defer to you i mean i, I don't know like it's i only I, i'm fairly certain i only ever saw one sarah band live actually it was the last one which oh, was yeah like, which was like a, a really great show and in retrospect like a really heartbreaking one because i don't know like you guys have probably read about the mother country motherfuckers lp mm -hmm. right? that it was meant to be like a double lp like zen arcade style like and you know just the kind of like brilliance conveyed like in terms of the themes and just like the sounds and all the stuff that was going on but making something that was still just such so at once like a piece of art that is great and like genuinely affecting but also like purely punk like there was nothing yeah. else you could define it as and the fact that her life was cut short so tragically early i don't know like she she died the same year as david bowie and i remember um i remember um writing something for a website about how you know all the year-end stuff i was reading was about how like you know, Bowie died at the top of his game and, you know, had left this like, you know, seemingly like supernatural album behind. And I personally felt like and I'm a huge Bowie guy, like he's like, you know, top, top, top for me. But I remember just reading all that stuff and being like, you motherfuckers need to be talking about Sarah Kirsch. <laughs> because to me, like that. Yeah, I just I remember getting the Mother Country Motherfuckers record and just listen walking around New York City and just like listening to it on repeat and being like really genuinely affected by it. But I mean, it's perfect. Yeah, but and and you can say that about John Henry West, Torches to Rome, Beta Brains, Please Inform the Cat, like all that stuff. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, I mean, you know, I I think she 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 showed a path forward in a lot of ways, you know, on top of just being like a pretty, you know preternaturally gifted musician and performer i mean and and brought brought things together like these these elements from like 80s hardcore that you know that to me made perfect sense but but i think brought together worlds that you know might not have been in contact with one another and that might sound like cryptic or vague but i remember so this for me it starts with this really formative experience which is like uh summer 93 uh the night before we were leaving for the second lifetime tour we saw john henry west play in a basement in new jersey 
and it was i don't i the adjectives are adjectives are are sad and 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 pale compared to what the experience felt like but you know incendiary catalyzing life affirming but i remember thinking and this is not that is definitely not a cool thing to say but it's just what i thought i'm like this is like if swizz and chain of strength had a baby <laughs> and like it was this band that i'm watching like take the paint off the walls in my friend john's basement and like i, I just you know we still talk about it to this day that show i don't even remember who else played but i remember where i was standing i remember everything and then we left for tour like the next morning and it was like that was the fuel for the whole thing and um Kirsch was just an amazing guitarist and you know even in even in like john henry west which is like a fast band there was like even then there was like that fugazi influence in there in this kind of barely perceptible way which is another great thing to infuse like to, you know to take fast hardcore and infuse it with that that um you know i think i feel like it took like fast hardcore and infused it with this like revolution summer kind of thing that you know, I think it was really hard to do, and I've been trying to pull off ever since in in like this, in this kind of uh, secondhand way, I guess. Yeah, it's a sound that like only every once in a while do you get a band that even really comes close to doing it. Like, and then some bands will cite reference, you know, reference the Revolution Summer as like you know what they're going for, but none of them like most of them don't hit it in that same way, and like every single project Kirsch was in, like from what the skin flutes all the way, you know, up to, you know, please inform the captain, you know, like there's, or whatever, you know, everything she did was this, I don't know. I get an energy out of those records that she, that she made. And, uh, there, there's a vast discography in the sense that we have like close to two decades worth of music, but Mm -hmm. Even then, like it's not it's kind of scattered across the Internet unless you've got everything on vinyl, which I've got a good chunk of it, but not everything still. Yeah, it's I'm missing just like, a few things. I'm missing a lot of the seven inches and some I, of the even before I saw John Henry West, I was jockeying that sawhorse seven inch so hard. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that came out the same year, if I if I recall correctly. Yeah, they're like right on top of each other, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was also just the way Kirsch did the the whole like there was none of this like you know wait for the album to drop and wait for the album to get reviewed and then go on tour to support it was just like sometimes I think like the the band was you know over be- by the time the record came out yeah with some of those bands if I remember correctly oh uh, yeah but Navio Forge was like a two show band and then a record that's it and yeah my one of my like holy grail type guests that i've never like I, I want to have on the show but i don't know that it'll ever happen is i want to talk to sean linwood he was the lead singer at navio forge mm-hmm. and, and an admiral the, the, who put out two killer seven inches too oh yeah and like i want to talk to that guy i don't know where he is what he's doing what he's been doing since then like because he's an incredible vocalist as well i uh I had to track down Corey Lindstrom, who was the singer for John Henry West and for End of the Line, because um, we needed permission to sample John Henry West on uh, on that last Paint It Black 7-inch. And I, you know, I couldn't get permission from Sarah, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I, I talked to Kent McClard who put, you know, put it out and put the, and, uh, you know, who put, it was from the, I think the live, the live stuff that was on, uh, on that John Henry West discography that Ebullition put out. Yeah. Bolt the door shut, I think is what it's called. Door bolted shut. Yeah, yeah. And so Kurt, you know, McClard was fine with it, but I I had to talk to somebody. I had to talk to somebody else, and and I I got in touch with Corey, and because we were sampling this, like, in-between song, Banter, and that was when Corey told me, like, you know, I appreciate you reaching out and asking, but that was actually Kirsch that did all the talking between songs, which was a surprise to me but it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to ask about her because, you know, we don't really get a lot of guests on the show that really <laughs> reference them. <laughs> it's rare to get to talk with other people who are familiar with, with her about, because like Justin said, like it's just one of our, like has been such an impactful musician and artist to us. Like just an incredible all around great guitar player and lyricist and vocalist and like, the collage artwork that she does, the sound collage work that she did. Like it's just the whole total package and the way that she envisioned these, like these songs coming together. Like it it wasn't just a song. It was like, it was like a whole life story in a song, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, so deliberate, but at the same time felt so spontaneous and alive. That's the, that's the thing that I feel like is, is definitely missing like Justin was saying, like people, bands that maybe reference the uh, the like Rites of Spring and Embrace and stuff like that. It's like you might you get like kind of a Rites of Spring riff, but it doesn't have that doesn't have that immediacy. It doesn't have that like it's coming from too, I guess, too thought out of a place. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have the soul that you that yeah. you need, you know, like, I mean, Rites of Spring were like a deeply like soulful you know, band oh, yeah. almost uncontrollably. So, and that's the part that people miss. Like it can't just be pure aesthetic. Yeah. There needs to be spirit. And, um, and you know, it's easy to say like, you know, especially when a, you know, like a codified genre, like revolution summer or emo or whatever has some kind of like subcultural capital attached to it. You know, you can say like, Oh yeah, we're like revolution summer style, but, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. It just means you have those like little triplet riffs occasionally. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. The dag nasty riffs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I think the, the, the through line or the, you know, the connection between them too, is that they, they've Kirsch's work and, and like rates of spring, I think are both sound almost like uncontrollable, you know, um, which, you know, most bands just like, can't, can't do. But. Like how'd you get all that sound to fit in those grooves? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like the vinyl, the medium of vinyl, which we all know is the best medium for music. Like the medium of vinyl had difficulty containing what was going on. Well, they said that a lot about like like Happy Go Licky too, where like, you know, I mean not to digress into a whole thing, a whole gee thing, but like, you know, I think Happy Go Licky is sort of like the butt of a lot of jokes about like DC. Um but like I think people that were around and certainly Gee are like, oh, no, they were like they were fucking incredible, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you had. But you had to be there. You had to see it like it, they never really made a record. And, you know, it, it it no, they were they were like an incredible band. And I think that that, you know, is worth worth noting when it comes to these kinds of things, too. I don't know. It's you know, 
sometimes it's tough to capture things on on a record luckily the curse records all fucking rip so we have that so we gotta start talking about 1998 and the record because <laughs> i'm not gonna last um <laughs> if we if we uh if we just i would lo- i'll talk to you about sarah kirsch like for another entire episode but um but you know i recognize that this your podcast has a theme and we we got to go there or you're gonna lose me like so <laughs> nah we, we we go on tangents all the time so that's all right i i brought it on too so <laughs> no no yeah i just i just don't want to like i don't want to duck out and you and you're like hey uh I think we're supposed to talk about this album. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's get into the rest of the show then. Um, so we the premise of this show is we assign our guests a year and they choose one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk adjacent record from that year for us to talk about. So we gave you the year 1998. And before we get into the record you chose to talk about, what else came out that year that you you almost considered talking about? I got a whole list if you if you want me to go down at Dan. I I prepared. Yeah, <laughs> I I remember End Hits was one, right? Yeah. Yep. That would have been a contender. Yeah, there was like an Unwound record that year. Yeah, Repetition. Was, uh, thing. Challenge. Oh, Challenge. Uh, okay. Challenge. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. Everything they. Yeah, yeah, it's a contender. That second Drop Dead record came out that year. Dillinger Four record came out that year. His Hero Is Gone. I have a bunch of other more kind of obscure things as well including uh the i hate the second i hate you seven inch which is another big philadelphia record um but like life's halt put out a classic record that year death threat did the good death threat not the other one code 13 (laughs) put out a record that year that was amazing h 100s talk is poison judgment like there were a ton of like really great like small like quote-unquote smaller you know diy what did you say right before death threat what'd you say what did you say right before death threat code 13 or life no that was after uh life's hall which life's hall record sold our soul for hardcore the best record of all time that's perfect (laughs) yeah and like yeah like it uh but there were also a bunch of like kind of punk adjacent 98 was a kind of a big year like the first jets of brazil record came out and the Orchid seven inch and you can't forget what happens next put out their first record that year, which started mm-hmm. a whole long multi-year thrash trend that was pretty fun, but not really that well remembered now, I guess. But yeah, there was a ton of there was a it was a big year, I think, for a lot of people. And we should also say that I think Dan put out a record that year too. Absolutely. The Is that true? Is that true? Kid Kid Dynamite. Which one was it? Is it oh, the... the first one? Yeah. Yeah, I think that did come out in 98. And it's funny because I remember buying that record. This is, you know what? This is a good, this is a good uh, segue because I remember buying the, the uh, wrap your head around this, Dan. I bought the Kid Dynamite LP from Phil Leone at an R5 show, like the band R5 in somewhere in Pennsylvania. I bought that record and the Locust LP, which also came mm-hmm. out like the same week or something. The first record. That's weird. I was very excited to get both of them. And I had them in the van as we drove back to like Philadelphia. And while I was on the way, I got in kind of like a weird, like high school kind of like fight with my girlfriend at the time about how I went (laughs) to this punk show instead of like hanging out with her because it was Halloween. And later that night, 
I was supposed to go see who plays Stalag 13? Ink and Dagger. But <laughs> because of the fight we got in, I did not go. And instead I went out to like some cafe with my girlfriend to try and smooth things over, which I don't think I did. And in retrospect, I should have just gone to the Ink and Dagger show. That was a bad choice. <laughs> and, but then the... Um, but then the next day I spent listening to the Kid Dynamite record and the Locust record back to back. And uh, and uh, it kind of helped a little bit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, 98 was um, strong. Like there's a lot of really, really great records that year. Yeah. Dylan and I, we have a Patreon and we've we've we're doing a starting five where we each just pick five records from that year to like talk about kind of briefly and like going through it. I was like, I wound up with like 30 picks. And I was like, well, clearly I have to narrow this down to five. And I'm like, okay, let me pick styles. Like I have to get a style down. Yeah, you. you this is an this is a year where we could just. I'm for for a frame of reference, I'll say, uh, looking at the rate your music charts, I was on page five, and that's where Over the James by Avail shows up. So like <laughs> that's the kind of year that we're talking about. How deep it goes as far as like big records. Yeah, I guess it was a little bit it was a little bit of that like punk blew up what 94 for mainstream audiences and so then like the more independent DIY punk scenes had to go harder and like push these boundaries even more and it's just like a lot of different styles like we have heavy stuff, melodic stuff, like jangly, just really cool variety of records in 98. So, yeah, I'd say it was a it'd be a tough year to just narrow it down to one. So we did it, though. You did. You narrowed it down. And the record you actually chose for us to talk about, it is Ink and Daggers, The Fine Art of Original Sin. as I like to call them, about the record. Uh, so Ink and Dagger were a Philadelphia, Pennsylvania band. This was released on Initial Records. The personnel is Sean Patrick McCabe on vocals, Don DeVore on guitar, Joshua Brown on bass, and Ryan McLaughlin on drums, as well as some additional vocals on We Live, Des- we Live Despite Their Schemes and Vampire Fast Code version 1.5 by Jennifer Lane Park. Any jams. And there's a remix of The Fine Art of Original Sin by Jay Smooth and J.G., and it was produced and engineered by Eric Horowitz at Meat Locker Studios in Philadelphia. So I always like to ask our guests, uh, what made you choose this record specifically to talk about? Uh, I mean, isn't it obvious? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think we were looking over the list. We we 
internally were discussing at great length like all of the records that we just talked about and you know we were thinking about lungfish or fugazi or you know dillinger four veil you know stuff like that but it it seems like for a number of reasons that as a philadelphia band it's only right that we talk about the best philadelphia band of all time ink and dagger who you know were transformative for the city and for you know certainly for myself and for lots of other people yeah no um, and uh but it's all i also think that there's a lot to talk about, a lot more like interesting stuff to talk about with the ink and dagger record that maybe you know i mean i don't know how many times can people say that fugazi are great like th there's like what's the point <laughs> right <laughs> but uh and they are of course but yeah i mean you know ink and dagger is kind of a weird a weird band in general and i think uh we love to spin our wheels and flap our gums about about them so that's why we picked it yeah You've probably had as many as many geographic conversations about Ink and Dagger as we have about Sarah Kirsch. Just, uh, you know, we've gone on and on about how they were the coolest thing to come out of Philly and how the no band sound like that ever. And they, you know, they just fused influences there that were at once like immediately familiar and recognizable, but also just like all over the map and put them together in a way that was kind of hard to describe do you do you guys like the record have, are you familiar <laughs> with it do you know it what what is what are your takes on on ink and dagger and on their first album uh dylan you go first so i think i i've just heard more things about ink and dagger than i've really spent time listening to ink and dagger like i've probably heard more like just like stories and like people talking about like their their whole like image and that stuff definitely overshadows what they actually sounded like and what they actually did musically I feel like as far as like my personal previous knowledge so I I, I never really spent much time with them until doing it for this show so another classic record that I have to admit that I didn't know <laughs> which is it's really funny that we're the hosts of this punk show and there's like there's so many records that i've never actually listened to <laughs> so it turns out you guys are just posers absolutely yeah, yeah. I, I we actually start every episode where i uh, i call everybody posers so yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> that. uh yeah it, it's funny our blind spots are kind of embarrassing sometimes especially whenever you know we admit this is a punk podcast so <laughs> so i I guess maybe I have actually listened to them more than you, Dylan. Yeah, which is, which is also ironic because this is absolutely like musically, this is like way more in my wheelhouse than yours, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. So they're, I guess, kind of like, yeah, like you said, the stories or the, I guess I was kind of like even introduced to them as like, oh, it's the band that uh, the guy from Tim and Eric was in before <laughs> he did the show. <laughs> and like. I guess that's how I first came. And they were like a vampire band. That was the other thing that like I knew about them before I listened to them. Uh, I th I think I've listened to this record before. I feel like I have. It's not one that I spent a ton of time with, but it is something that I had listened to as well as the record after this one. So, yeah, like I, I knew who they were and what they sounded like. But like I, I hadn't like analyzed this record like the way I did kind of getting ready for this one. Ultimately, it's a it's a great record. Like it's it 
it feels very 98 in the sense that like there's a lot of bands who were did things like them or tried to do things like them but couldn't at all like pull off i don't know the 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 energy or like the 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 soul like we were talking about earlier that they have um my cat is clawing at my door right now so i'll be right back you you guys keep talking (laughs) (laughs) scratching at your window yeah yeah i was just curious because i i only asked because i i feel like one of the things that i personally like about ink and dagger and can and liked at the time and continue like and i don't know how you feel feel about this dan but like you know i'm a firm believer in like the punk everything or you know what we do is secret (laughs) kind of thing Mm -hmm. and and ink and dagger kind of was and continues to feel like something that like is philadelphia's and philadelphia's only I think you left town or, you know, whatever. And people be like, isn't that that like vampire band? Like even at the time. And it was hard to explain to people, you know, like you're like, well, yeah, but it's kind of it's sort of tongue in cheek. It's also kind of a metaphor. It's also like sort of performance art, but it's also, you know, it's like all these things. But also they're like their shows are the craziest shows you've ever been to in your whole life and also the biggest shows like and all this stuff and it all kind of tied together in this really you know interesting and unique way that was really hard to explain to people outside of it and so i don't know like i it's impossible for me to know what it's like if you're listening to their album um, which is also like it should be noted like a kind of weird album in terms (laughs) of how it's sequenced and what the songs are and all that stuff it's not a normal thing, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, I, I have no way of knowing like how that translates to people who don't have any of the context or whatever. But I, I also think that you know one of the things that is great about punk is that there are all these like contextual, situational elements to like shows and bands that like you have to be a participant in order to fully understand, you know. You can't just like consume an MP3 from your desk and like get it. You know, and that's not to say, you know, the record isn't amazing and whatever. I'm just kind of I'm always just curious, like what people think when they're checking it out um, for the first time or whatever. But um, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. How do you feel about that, Daniel? Um, they definitely had a, like a, a like the, the what we do is secret kind of component is it's a good, good call because um, there was something about it that was like really mysterious in a way that like was partially calculated but also partially just like like there's definitely like something there was there was a calculated air of mystery to them but there was also some like release the bats shit going on when they played live that you can't calculate and that was like not a thing you could replicate or explain um like the records didn't really do it justice and like trying to tell people outside of philly about it was like just a fool's errand really you had to see it um and people had a lot to say about them that had never like seen them play just because of like there's a lot of mythologized going on some of which was the band's own doing and some of it was just sort of like a phenomenon that took on a life of its own i guess that makes any sense does that make sense yeah, I mean, sounding like a crazy fanboy or just like a, <laughs> no, like I I'm think, writing a dissertation. <laughs> I think you're right. Like, and I, I actually never really, ironically, I've thought about this band more than most bands, but 
I never really thought about how the language and the kinds of like, like they basically gave people a certain kind of permission to be crazy, you know, like, like their first song they ever released, the refrain is devil children unite. And if you were at, and if you were at the shows, you were a devil child. And it was like, they gave you this sort of permission under cover of darkness to just be a lunatic. And so I think that might have a, have something to do with like why the shows were so crazy. You know, they, they gave it, they gave you a name by being there and were saying, yes, like we're doing a thing together and it's going to be insane. And, you know, they utilized all kinds of like slogans and like secret codes and, you know, acronyms and all sorts of things that like drew you in because a lot of the time I mean most of the time they didn't explain what it meant you know like they would put stuff on their flyers that would be like referring to the SPS which stood for scorpiatic power sound and that was like a way that they referred to themselves but like you didn't know what that was all you saw was like the SPS will rock you and you're like, what does that mean? And so you would. But you to, wanted to know that. Was of course, yeah, you wanted, you wanted to, to be a part of it because you know they were the you know still one of the most like provocative bands I've ever seen. I mean, I I imagine it's similar to how people felt when they saw like the Cramps or you know whoever. But yeah, and um and yeah, of course, as Dan said, they definitely mythologized themselves intentionally and understood the power of that stuff and the power of like performance and all that i mean you talk about how you know you're almost more familiar with the stories about them now than you are the music but that was even true at the time when they were a band you know like there was like there was way more stuff in the in the culture about them and rumors and gossip like all kinds of shit than there were songs you know but they would they took it on the road you know like they were a collection of first lineup of that band was a collection of like bonkers bonkers human yeah and then they took it on the road and like man did they cause a stir i don't think they like i don't think they tried to make friends they just like <laughs> went out and like made a, like kind of wreaked havoc yeah um, but it, but it wasn't like the way that it wasn't in a conventional like punk or hardcore kind of way it was more like the stories you hear about like the jesus and mary chains early shows or something you know Nightmares make me crazy for your kiss Always dreaming of the apocalypse Nightmares make me crazy for your kiss Tortured torment on your sore lips 
and it all contributed good and they also they also like tied it all into philadelphia you know like all their songs were about philadelphia and how living in philadelphia like fucks you up <laughs> and turns you into a psycho <laughs> and um and so yeah i mean it was um it's, it, was, it wasn't uh, really for outsiders, you know? It was kind of for the city. Yeah. Dylan, I was trying to remember, like, did we ever have any band like that when we were going to shows? Were there any bands that we were just like, you gotta hear this, you gotta see this band. They were so crazy. Uh, I feel like there was some, like, there were the bands that you, t- you got got talked about before you ever saw them, but... Where are you guys maybe from? Not really. I mean, I feel like... I feel like people said a lot about maybe some local bands that then you go see it and it wasn't really that like it wasn't really yeah. that impressive. And it was definitely it was definitely put on more than it was like, you know, sincerely like coming from a because Ink and Dagger are just kind of like from everything that I've read, like as far as they have like they have this like like all of the mysterious stuff and like the crazy like the wildness of their shows like is like kind of orchestrated but it also isn't and like they because like you know off the stage they also were like lunatics <laughs> like from what i've read is like from their story the stories on the road like they would they had a shoplifting game i think yeah <laughs> like when they were on tour they would just like see how much see stuff how- they could steal uh, they would stop in shopping malls and just steal a bunch of clothes and just compare what they stole and like there's there's a crazy story about them smashing a, a vending machine and then getting pulled over by the cops and having to explain why they had a bunch of broken glass and candy in the floor of their car. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you guys brought that up. Cause I didn't want to like, I didn't want to tell those stories and then be told later that I wasn't supposed to tell those stories. <laughs> I think those are all on, there's a no echo. Yeah. Article, which is actually funny. Like, kind of adding to the mystery it's part one and there's no part two <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sounds like ink and dagger yeah um, yeah i read that and that article that article's really really good uh, everyone should check that out too for sure that's kind of something sean would have orchestrated <laughs> yeah. yeah so this record specifically like you're obviously fans of the band and their ethos and their theatrics but even just like musically, this record rips. Like it's so good. And Dylan, yeah. I think you were telling me you 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 said like refused ripped a lot of stuff off this this band specifically, and you can kind of hear that like you know refused kind of famously known for like doing rips of things and taking things yeah. from other bands. And I it's feel one like of, the, like nation they they pull from like their whole thing was like part nation of Ulysses, part Ink and Dagger. Yeah. And then maybe like uh, some some like aspirational Fugazi stuff. <laughs> I do think that there's a little bit of just kind of lateral thinking that happened in the 90s. Because, I mean, Frotus had the yeah. same kind of theatrical, mysterious, you know, they're like secret corporate police or something. And I don't know, Shelby Sinka used a, a megaphone a lot. And like there was definitely like a Nation of Ulysses thing, too, as well. That was definitely a really influential band, I think, in terms of like having that sort of mysterious vibe yeah. or like being a club that uh, you want other people that other people want to be a part of. I, I feel like is maybe a good way to describe it. But 
Yeah, and and Ink and Dagger were like, you know, their primary musical influence, at least in terms of guitar bands at the beginning, was all DC stuff. You know, yeah. it was like it was Discord and and especially Swizz. Um, so you know, I, I I have to imagine that like Nation of Ulysses were like maybe not a direct influence, but like, you know, that was in there somewhere, I think, in terms of like the presentation. It laid the groundwork for them to do something like that in the context of like, you know, a DIY band or, you know, whatever you want to consider them, I guess. But um Swizz is a good definitely a good comparison to make too. Yeah. Because they had the they had the very like they were big on slogans too. Like yeah. They had the the total cool total power slogan and <laughs> they had that sweet logo and mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was also still like extremely raw and just kind of like uncontrolled emotion at times. Yeah, I mean Don, Don not to speak for him, but Don for sure was a huge Jason Farrell fan and like Ink and Dagger played with Blue Tip a lot, um, you know, when they were a band and. Um, so yeah, that's not that's a, for sure a, a musical influence for them. But you know, they were also influenced by all sorts of other stuff that I don't think would have been necessarily obvious to people on the outside, like everything from dance music, like Aphex Twin and Square Pusher and drum and bass from the UK and house music and stuff, but also like Spaceman Three and Spiritualized and Roller mm-hmm. Skinny and like all the some of the like more obscure shoegaze bands that were happening at the time and all of that's in there and you can see it a little more uh on the the second lp and some of the singles and stuff but you know it's it was already in there in um in that first lp i'm i'm pretty fond of saying that like one of the things that's kind of funny about ink and dagger was that like if you were an ink and dagger fan at the time you were you were you were probably different than like other like popular hardcore bands at the t- fans of popular hardcore bands at the time who might be like yeah i'm into like youth of today and um and quicksand like i like those bands but if you were an ink and dagger you'd be like yeah i really like um autecker and um <laughs> and roller skate skinny <laughs> <laughs> you know and like i mean sean famously had an aphex twin logo tattoo on his arm that was visible like pretty much whenever they played and um yeah i mean how many other like hardcore bands in like 1996 can say that i don't know i mean so it was like they were like a very different kind of thing while still being very much part of the scene and like around and you know playing diy shows in the same diy venues as everyone else which to me at the time was like really um like that was meaningful you know because i was pretty young and, um, you know, you're used to like, you don't have a whole lot of experience and you're used to things being a certain way. And then a band comes along doing things the way they did them in that setting. And yeah, it kind of made me rethink like how you can do music and how you can present it and all that stuff. But for sure, like, I mean, they were definitely an influence on Refused. I think, I don't think this is a rumor. Like Don was also in Refused, I think, after, like, after shape of punk came out like he he was like playing with them for a little while and i guess they decided to break up but they also toured with them yeah um in europe and stuff so that's they were for sure like a an influence on them and many others uh side note uh do we lose dan 
I see his icon, but I don't see his face. Because he's yeah, not on the call right now. It's just so. three of four in the call, so. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. I'm seeing four, but well, if he's gone, we can make fun of him. <laughs> um, like i went to like go chase the cats out of the room because they were fighting each other so i was like i wouldn't be surprised if his phone died or something so yeah. let's just oh yeah talking about it. but yeah i yeah. mean so yeah all that stuff was like pretty important like to the the city and the scene at the time but i think it also like figures directly into what is on the record and why it's like such an interesting thing and there are a couple other things i want to want to mention about the um the record itself in terms of like as i think i sort of hinted at before oh <laughs> sorry D- dan is pausing because he his daughter woke up and he has to do dad stuff for a second <laughs> isn't that cute um, <laughs> folks he's a good parent but it's crazy like the 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 album okay so it's eight tracks right and but like a bunch of the stuff so it's really, in my mind, it, it's really like six tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, each of them, it feels to me like a collection of singles almost, because a lot of these songs were sort of like out there in some way. And the thing that was really crazy, I was looking at this earlier, but I was like, I can't believe that they put a record out every year, like 96, 97, 98, because at the time it felt like a absolute eternity in between the you know in between the releases and as a result like people that were really into the band like me were just dying for like new stuff because they had you know a five song seven inch that came out first which is probably my favorite record like my favorite hardcore record (laughs) certainly my favorite from philadelphia and then they put out a four song ep and there was like one comp track or whatever but like you know when it's like your favorite and best band that's like at the top of their game and whatever it's like they only have 10 songs like come on so so people were crazy about like oh dude they played on the radio in california on tour and i got a tape of it and it has like half of a new song on it and stuff like that and (laughs) it should also we should also say i don't know if this is on like discogs or anything but there is a oh yeah here it is i'm looking at right now there's also like a classic canonical live on WKDU set that came out that was like aired, I think, I don't know, probably four months before the, the record came out or something like that. But they played all the songs off the record, but it's like way more raw. Um, there's, you know, none of the none of the like electronic stuff. And, you know, there's lots of good banter and everything like that. And so a lot of these songs, I think there's only like one or two on the album that you'd never heard before. I think it was actually maybe just We Live Despite Their Schemes was the only one that hadn't been like released in some capacity before the album came out. And so at the time, it was really interesting to sort of reconcile how you already felt about a lot of these songs with like what they actually were. In the case of Vampire Fast Code, their song about downloading stuff off the internet <laughs> which is very cool um that's the third version of that song that i had like there was like a remix version of it that came out first that was on some compilation cd and then there was the live version from kdu so by the time the album came out it was like okay so this is the third version of it and you know <laughs> at the time I thought that was really cool because, you know, it made you reevaluate. I mean, now 
like Kanye West will put out 17 versions of the same song in the span of a week. But like at the time, you know, the way people, you know, approached like a punk record was not like that at all. And it sort of, you know, opened your mind a little bit about like, you know, how music worked and that kind of thing. Thank you for calling Dagger Industries. Begin upload now. inch that came out the year before and then of course i think one of the songs cutthroat tactics i think has a musical like uh like a a um a, a reprise of a motif from the first seven inch musically um which is another thing that's like pretty weird um for like a band like that to like take a really sick part and just like have it appear again in another song like two years <laughs> later I mean, it's weird. <laughs> it's like a, it's a pretty weird thing. Um, and so, yeah, it was like hearing it finally um, was like really like, um, you know, it, it it was like a, a thing that as a fan, you just like poured over the record because you knew that these were like the definitive versions of these songs. But you'd kind of already established a personal relationship with most of them, which I'm sure you guys have done that with other things like bands that you're obsessed with, like hearing like a live tape of something before it's out or, you know, whatever. But with with Ink and Dagger, it was like um, mm-hmm. it was different because the thing on the the the, the record um, is so like meticulously produced and de- like very sounds that way deliberately, obviously, that it is like a real different thing than like hearing them play like a raw live version or seeing them play the songs live in advance which they always did that too like you know there were songs that you knew from them playing live you know a year before they were on a record or something um do you guys have records like that for yourselves yeah i was trying to think of like specific ones in general dylan you're big with frotus like just going down the discography and like hearing every possible like version and take yeah um, just the, the live versions of i remember getting into frotus and being like down downloading everything and then just like like i you know the last two records are like perfect like they're incredible sounding and then like f letters like really good but then like the songs aren't produced super well and then like you get the live versions of some of the earlier stuff that's like such an improvement over like how you know crappy the the original production (laughs) is on the you know the first record or whatever and yeah i i definitely that's one of those I was thinking about that. Just like that's one of those things that it's like you don't see that in bands. Like I, I the last time I remember having like 
that kind of like feeling about a band where you like is probably the forgetters the live bootleg stuff that came out before yeah. they had released anything because they like there's that thorns of life gilman yeah yeah that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff yeah that's is that the recording with like the computer clicks in it too like there's a <laughs> There's like a Thorns of Life live set from somewhere. There's, I think there's a couple recordings of Thorns of Life, but like, there's one that has like clicks in it, whereas like whoever was ripping it, like, was also doing something else. So like everyone, so you just hear like a little click. click. <laughs> but yeah, that was the one I thought of too. Like Forgetters was like we we probably downloaded a bootleg of a live show and then we went to that first Charlotte show they did, where like near they had nothing officially recorded. And you're like, wow, this is incredible. And then like getting the bootleg of that show, mm-hmm. and then like when and you listen to it, yeah, like, you actually listen to it because that was all you had because they didn't. Yeah. And then they released this, uh, the the first EP that they did, and it's like, wow, like I know like twice as many songs by them than this. Like I I know they <laughs> yeah. have more stuff. Why didn't they just do a record? <laughs> and then like you waited forever, forever. Like you listened to Hoop and Swan how many times, and it. It finally shows up on uh, on the on the full length, and it's like I like the live version better at this point because that's yeah, the one I know. You're comfortable with it, but it would probably be the other way around, right? Like if you heard the LP first, maybe. Yeah, know, maybe. maybe not. But like, yeah, I mean, I totally know the feel. I mean, I remember I did a show for Thorns of Life when they were, you know, I don't know how many shows they played, but I booked a show for them in Philly at like a house and. Yeah, just like the level of concentration that everyone in the crowd had to just like, because you knew you were like getting to hear this stuff that Blake had been working on for like 10 years. And you were like, oh, my God, you know, like we're we're going to get to hear these new songs. And like after the fact, people were even like talking about, you know, individual moments of certain of the songs, you know, they're like, oh, there was that one part where blah, 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 you know, and it's like, I mean, that's I think that that's the testament of like a really great band where you know people are that engaged with like the actual music it's not about like any of the you know extra stuff it's about you know like the songs and um and yeah i mean you know with when it came to the dagger like it was an event anytime a new song came out you know and i mean they put out after you know there's a stream of like singles there's a couple splits there's a couple random comp tracks and stuff but there's not a whole lot of material you know, they weren't a band for that long. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't know why it ended as as quickly as it did. Um, I mean, they were certainly very active while they were a band. But but yeah, like it was a huge deal when they would put out like, like I remember when the, they, there's, they have a split seven inch with Le Shock and there's a song on it that like they'd played live in Philly a bunch of times and everyone like, all my friends anyway were just that song's amazing like when is it gonna come out and then it finally did and it was like all anyone could talk about like this one song from this one band um but that was the kind of power they had over the city and it is kind of funny in retrospect that they they really were like their own thing um and i don't think that they like people didn't really pick up on like how genius they were until um at least outside of the city until later and maybe not even really uh, maybe they haven't at all and you, there's probably a lot of you know reasons why that is um but i am curious as to why there hasn't been sort of like a comprehensive you know anthology of their stuff or you know you see some of these like emo band box sets that 
like numero group is putting out or whatever and it's cool that a lot of that stuff is getting um you know attention and stuff like i love mohinder and like karate and all those bands but um it is weird that there's not like a you know something like that frank and dagger because i think if you put it all on you know on lp it's it's amazing stuff you know yeah it's funny because like today the day we recorded this like you know there was that botch thing going around about like oh wow sergeant house is gonna now be repressing all the botch records like they've been repressed like a billion times yeah. <laughs> like why it's is this a botch uh botch played first of three on an ink and dagger tour when they were first uh that, that was the first time i saw botch was when they it was like botch nine iron spitfire and ink and dagger um anyway yeah but yeah to your point you're right though i also think a lot of I think that botch story got blown up because people thought it was saying that botch was back, like yeah. re- reuniting. And like, they had to be like, just so you know, we're not reuniting. This is just <laughs> new pressings. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I saw that on the train home from work just shortly before recording. I was like, botch isn't back. It's like, that'll never <laughs> happen. That's like, never say never. My friend United without their, without their singer, you know, <laughs> I mean, Jawbreaker reunited, and that was never gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I believe that like pretty much everything will happen at some point. All the things that I thought wouldn't happen have happened. So, you know. yeah, yeah. But, I feel like for a reason to not get together would be because they really hate each other. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. I mean, Husker Du never did. I mean, they definitely can't now. But like, yeah, they definitely genuinely hated each other. <laughs> Yeah, I always, I, this is maybe like, I mean, we're digressing here, so I apologize, but this is maybe a very cynical read, but I always just think that the only ones where it doesn't happen is either if something like unforgivable happened between the people in the band, uh, or there's just no angle, you know, like, the, like the reason you've never seen Inside Out is because there's no angle, like why, like why would Zach do that if he wanted to get together with his old band again he could do the one where they get 10 million bucks a show (laughs) (laughs) instead of the one where you know a couple hundred revelation obsessives would be i mean obviously i love inside out but um but i think you know that's the thing but i will say i i should say that the ink and dagger reunion was actually great i didn't i i was i was like nervous about it but they were fantastic um when jeff from thursday did uh who was like around at the time and like was friends with them at the time and everything they did yeah. a really good job so um yeah don actually like worked on a jeff record a jeff rickley record yeah so like he must have like already been you know talking with them. i bet i wonder if jeff like talked them into doing it i could see that being that i don't know i i'm not sure how it ha- like i'm friends with don now we Sarah, I play in uh, ceremony also, and we um we took one of his like newer bands um on tour a couple years ago, and like I've known him from around from around for a long time. I'm not really sure how it came together. I'm sure there's probably an interview about it somewhere, but it made sense that it was that they did it with Jeff. Um, and I thought I think that it they did like this um warehouse show that I don't know if it was a secret show or whatever before the big like festival that they played at and it was like pitch black and the microphone didn't work and stuff so you couldn't really hear him so there was sort of just like this figure on the stage that you couldn't really hear but like the crowd was so loud that didn't really matter 
and it really did feel like um like a seance kind of so it sort of <laughs> it sort of worked for them and it was like for th- for that reason it was kind of like one of the better reunions i saw so it's like you're you know you're you're this band whose all your songs are about being undead and you're doing a show with a singer who died but it's in a pitch black warehouse where you can't hear the the microphone and it, like it really yeah. did feel like a ghost was there or something it was yeah really, it was really <laughs> fucking cool um and they sounded great um but and it's um, and it's just like how the band static x is currently going around <laughs> with a guy wearing a mask that looks like their dead lead singer is that real <laughs> so that's weird. a real thing that i think it's like the singer of the band dope is Ugh. singing for them but he's got like this metal face mask with like fake hair like done like wayne static and it's just like what what is this well there's the fake smash mouth singer i was gonna say yeah i saw the smash mouth thing today (laughs) i missed this there's a fake smash mouth singer people people are questioning whether or not that was actually him there's a there's a picture of him where he doesn't look right like it looks like someone (laughs) dressed up like him is this like an andrew wk thing yeah (laughs) (laughs) um Hey, Dan just texted me and he he wants me to mention a couple things about the Ink and Dagger record. Sure. So um, he said, here are some things I would mention. I don't know what's going on with his. Uh, <laughs> I feel like this is a long, a long uh, con to make to advertise what a great father he is, um, but, um, <laughs> which I think he is. So I, I can confirm that. But um, so anyway, he says a couple things. Number one, I had absolutely no memory of the fact that Ryan played um, on the record, referring to the drummer. Um, I am not sure that Ryan does play on the record. He might. Um, he might play on the record and just didn't play in the live version of the band, like at the time. But Ryan was the drummer of another band that maybe you guys know called Prima, who were on Equal Vision, who... Um, have like an incredible record that like no one ever talks about um like a double lp that i highly recommend um everyone check out um and he's like an unbelievable drummer um and um and so yeah i i know that ryan like played in the band for a little while and for sure played on that simba record seven inch that came out before the lp he probably did play on the record i'm not sure but um our friend terry who recorded a lot of the ink and dagger stuff was like their drummer for most of the time from like when this lp came out till the end of the band he's he said that we should mention that um prima were amazing though so check them out if you have not um yeah not familiar with that one speaking of drummers dan wants to say that the first time i should connect some personnel here real quick um the first drummer of ink and dagger was dave wagon who was the drummer of lifetime and also the drummer of kid dynamite and also the drummer of paint it black for the first two records um and uh so dan wanted to say that the first time i saw ink and dagger the wound of dave leaving lifetime was still pretty fresh (laughs) and and then he remembers thinking to himself damn wags upgraded pretty hard (laughs) (laughs) which like is true i mean like and I think Dave has told me, like Dave's still a really good friend. I saw him last month. Um, he's, I think he says that his drumming on the first Ink and Dagger Seven Inch is still like his favorite drumming that he's ever done. I mean, it's it's insane. It's like 
and I mean, no one was more of a like a beast behind the drums than, than Dave at that time. Um, and uh, I recently saw like someone uploaded a video of Ink and Dagger playing at Handy Street in New Brunswick, which was like a punk house that I think some of the Lifetime guys, I'm pretty sure maybe Jeff from Thursday lived there too at one point. Like it was a classic New Brunswick punk house. And someone uploaded a video of Ink and Dagger playing there in like I want to say 96 maybe 97 but it's Dave it's the it's the lineup with Eric Wareheim and Dave like the first seven inch lineup but they play some songs off the second seven inch and most importantly they play a song from this LP that I guess they were still working on and but it's like a different version of it and hearing like an alt version of a song that I've heard like infinity times um with like the best lineup of Ink and Dagger performing it that's like slightly different in the year 2020 was like I was just like levitating off the ground with joy it was like it was I just could not believe it um it's another thing that I would recommend people check out that that live video I I would never encourage anyone to watch like a live video if it was not like transcendent um I kind of hate watching videos of bands playing but um, but this one is incredible. So um, to that end, Dan, um, I guess <laughs> he was so good at that era and the band was so good at that time that um, that Dan, I guess, got over his sadness that Dave had quit Lifetime. <laughs> 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 um, and then the last thing he wanted to say was that um, uh, although the record is sick, it is not at all his go to when he listens to the band. Um, it's still the first two seven inches for him all the way. Um, and he, we touched on this, but um, he said he was always curious about that part that I mentioned, the uh, the sort of reprise of the um, the the motif from the first seven inch. Um, he thought it was really cool and took a lot of guts to do something like that. And he always wondered if there was a story about it. He does not answer that. <laughs> That's sort of yeah. non sequitur. But yeah, it it was. And you know, the band at the time just did so much stuff that like took so much so much guts to do um and as a result we're just like really inspiring i think to a lot of people um a lot of the people that are my age in philly who are still involved in doing shows or playing in bands and stuff were people who i know were around for ink and daggers reign and who you know were turned into lifers by seeing them and being around when they were a band so yeah, yeah. i wonder too because like how much of that is because the Philly connection, I guess, is what made them such an important band for you and Dan. Cause I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I was kind of young in 98. So like, I don't know that I was like aware of what was going on in this specific scene. Mm-hmm. So I don't know too much about people's like outside of that area, like really thinking about them, but like listening to this record, I'm like, this band is great. They are theatrical, and over the top and the songs are killer it's like they should be a bigger touchstone or a bigger reference point for people who aren't outside of philadelphia too you know Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think like yeah i don't know i mean philly's a weird city in terms of like punk history because it's had it's had a vibrant punk scene since the the 70s and 80s but they're it's pretty short on canonical bands, you know, like 
it's not like New York or Boston or LA or even San Francisco or Chicago or any of these places. Um, and there are very few bands that like people outside of Philadelphia would regard as classics. You know, there's like the Dead Milkmen and Why Die and, um, you know, FOD. And after that, it's pretty, I mean, obviously all the bands me and Dan have done. But, Pagan um, Babies. <laughs> Pagan but, Babies. Um, yeah. Pure Hell. Like, you know, there's a bunch, but... Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is, but, um, but that's kind of what I like about it. And that's kind of what I like about the Ink and Dagger album too, in general. I know I kind of touched on this before, but like, like one of the things that I like about it as a, as an artifact is that for me, my relationship with it is that it, it serves as proof that like punk and a punk scene are more than just like a record, you know? And in order to get the full experience of it, there's all this other stuff that goes into it. And the record is a part of it for sure. And this one is like an amazing record, but like, that's not the thing that's great about Ink and Dagger. You know, it's all the other stuff combined. Mm -hmm. And that's stuff that you can't really translate. That's not something you can really translate unless you, you experience it for yourself. But those experiences can, you know, can change the course of your life, you know? Yeah, I would say I I definitely get more out of this band by reading the history of them and like putting it into the context of what was going on musically in this time period and like and I, like I can certainly make the connections to like other bands that I'm that I am a fan of, you know, that have meant a lot to me and being like, "Oh, okay, like so this is there's kind of some cross-pollination that happened here that I wasn't aware of and that's really that's really cool and brings it brings it to a personal level for me but I think like yeah definitely listening to this record you know on its own completely removed from that context and the story of the band and all that stuff it would be like pretty sick record but yeah maybe that's all I would say about it you know but (laughs) not to say that it's not good not not to say they couldn't like become more of a regular listening you know a record that I would come back to often but it definitely it definitely doesn't hit the same way yeah totally and i mean i uh dan's back so i will inform him that we touched on all all the things that you texted (laughs) me but like dan i mean i for me if i'm gonna listen to them i will listen i'll put on the first seven inch and instantly as soon as the needle drops i want to drive a bulldozer through a wall which Mm -hmm. is a very common like a common take from people from Philadelphia, I think. Um, but you know, this record is great, and the rec- the next record is is really great too. Um, and it's a really audacious record um, from an audacious and great band. You know, um, welcome. Yeah, back. that that second record is is interesting because I listened to it too to get ready for this episode, and I was like, it's very different sounding. Like it's mm-hmm. darker, more experimental, not as heavy. I didn't I didn't feel like. Um, no, no, it's not. But it's like, cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's. They were on yeah. some. They were on some other shit altogether by then, I think. Yeah, I. I, I don't know if I could know. say what it was, but. <laughs> Ecstasy. <laughs> um, there's like a story about like spiritualized playing the trocadero in Philadelphia, and um, everyone who went to the spiritualized show like becoming like a crazy drug person afterwards <laughs> and <laughs> and i feel like that that ink and dagger record um 
is like a product of that to some degree. Because <laughs> um, I know Spaceman 3 were one of the like one of their one of Ink and Dagger's like favorite bands. So I bet they were at that famous spiritualized show in Philly. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. They, I mean, you know, they they wrote about a lot of the same kinds of stuff as spiritualized and Spaceman 3, like like big stuff. You know, there was no like youth crew revival style lyrics of like songs about hanging out with the boys and like <laughs> it like you said you'd never fucking change like seven different times on a record or whatever like Inga Dagger was writing about you know like they were talking about being the changeling yeah, but like, <laughs> yeah they were talking about death and they were talking about sex and you know drugs and you know classic rock and roll stuff one thing I think that we we haven't touched on is how funny they also were <laughs> So they're funny too you know a lot of the lyrics are are tongue-in-cheek and meant to be a little silly and that kind of thing but yeah i mean comparing it to and a lot sean, of the sean was one of the sean was one of the funniest dudes yeah like the mandela records all have like crank phone calls at the end of them like the demo and, <laughs> and like whatever and they were you know prank phone call masters those guys did you guys talk about mandela strike force no mm-hmm. <laughs> we should <laughs> No, just a precursor to, band. I gotta that plug in my Hang on a second. Ugh. Sorry, we're going I, long here. I was looking into uh, the artwork as well. So it was done by this artist named Carlos Batts, who also worked on the artwork for Page 99's Document Number Five. And I was like, oh, that's that like sense. that's like the next progression in like Ink and Daggers, like more sound i guess like shifting into like the more screamo direction and the richmond scene around that time yeah that that artwork totally makes sense to me he also did there was a story at the time that ink and dagger spent their entire budget for the record on the artwork (laughs) which is is like a very them thing to do which looking at the artwork it's cool uh it's got a lot of i don't know exactly like what is happening in it like there's an eyeball looking through something and like paint, I guess. That's very, I mean, it's very clear. They were also like an acid rock band, <laughs> like in in the sense of in like the punk rock sense of, of yeah. things. There's a I, few bands I would think of if, if you were to, if you were to ask me like in punk rock and punk like who who was acid rock. And this the, is definitely one of the bands. The funnier credit I saw from that artist was uh, also Danzig 777, <laughs> which Whoa. is like the one of the real bad, like, is it electronic or industrial Danzig records? It's like it's, a photo. I yeah. I lose to far eye. The, the seventh Danzig record. Yeah. It's like kind of collage sort. Well, not, it's an interesting cover. It's like he's got the logo in the is an odd cover. But that that artist also does a lot of like photography too, and that kind this like leather stuff that's on the Danzig artwork is kind of what also that artist has done in their own work. So, yeah, interesting to see a connection to Danzig through the artwork on this album. Yeah. So another thing that, and if you guys discussed this already, uh, you know, just talking about the, the mystery and the mythology, I don't know if this is deliberate. I don't know who whose scheme this is but when you search them on streaming their 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 collected works are listed under like three different mm-hmm. permutations of the band's name did you notice yeah. that when you were looking up this record 
Yeah, I went at first to, I was like, I went to listen to this one again today and like started typing the name, and the first one that came up was with the plus sign, and I clicked on that, and I'm like, where's the album? Like, did they yeah. did it get taken down? Yeah, and I had so to go ink, search for ink, search for the album ink, title. Ink plus dagger is the yeah. Only the first seven inches there. And then the LP is under Ink and Dagger and Ink and Dagger. <laughs> it actually, it's actually like Ink and Dagger with an ampersand mm-hmm. and then another ampersand and then Ink and then the word and and then Dagger. <laughs> All one long name. And then there's just Ink and Dagger spelled out. And that's where the second LP is. And they're and they're mostly the same. It's all says six feet under record, so it's not like whoever even uploaded it. It's the same person, like the same group. It looks like so, like it has. I think to this stuff like was a, all. I think this stuff was all re-released by an, another label more recently, yeah. and they were just having fun with it in a way that probably Sean and Don would have done. I would I, imagine if, if streaming were around. I used to, before I really ever listened to this band, I also used to get them confused with the band Cloak and Dagger, which is like more like a screamo band, right? No, they were they were no, more of a... Cloak, Cloak Dagger's from Richmond, and they're more on like yeah. a... I would say more of a, like a Wipers kind of. Yeah. Oh, like hardcore like really kids, hard kids doing the Wipers. I don't know. Andy, is that accurate at all? Yeah, they're like they're like uh, Hot Snakes, Wipers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. They're great, though. They're great. I did for a long time always mix Ink and Dagger up with uh, Murder City Devils, who did have <laughs> a record this same year. That's funny. That I mean, that, that's a weird one to mix them up with because they weren't that different as live bands at the time. Like, like the Murder City shows in like 97, 98 were like also like insane, chaotic, like fire, people, bodies flying everywhere. Um yeah, that's actually that's funny. Which I guess they're the uh, yeah the West Coast equivalent because they were they were a Seattle band. Which yeah yeah. I also didn't realize they had members in Pretty Girls Make Graves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. All those like pre Murder City Devils bands are really great too. If you've never heard them, like the Deathwish Kids and um, especially Area Fifty One mm-hmm. are like both like totally sick. I remember kind of having my mind blown at the time learning that the uh, Murder City people were all like hardcore kids and not like, you know, Fonzie garage rocker <laughs> dudes, you know? Yeah, that was surprising. Um, but the, the the best show I ever saw them play was like in San Francisco and they played with that band Dead and Gone, um, who, you know, are like one of my favorites. And it totally made sense. So, yeah, it was like not at all like a, you know old-timey rock and roll thing way more (laughs) way more intense and chaotic than that here's a here's a weird little rabbit hole the uh the guitarist from death wish kids was also in modest mouse yeah i think he still is right dan yeah yeah dan galucci you're asking asking, yeah (laughs) or at least he was until 2005 i think he was kind of off and on yeah um yeah, I think he's in that band Cold War Kids too. That guy's busy. <laughs> just just out of curiosity, I was also curious what else Initial was doing in 90, uh, 98. And so there's a couple things. Uh, the two things I really noticed was uh, they did Boy Sets Fires in Chrysalis EP and the Jazz Junes Breakdance Suburbia 7-inch. 
But then there's also a Despair EP and a Live Slugfest EP, which are both Scott Vogel bands, which predate Buried Alive and Terror. And then there's like a Shipping News split with Metro Shifter. So that's, I don't I didn't know a lot about initial records. So I, I, it's an odd little collection of bands there. Yeah, Louisville. I don't think I've heard any of those. <laughs> like, like not a single one of them. It was it was I think even at the time it was weird that they were on that that label but the only thing i'm really familiar with like listening to myself is the boy sets fire ep yeah never never heard it maybe i'll check it out um well seeing as we're at a little bit at uh hour and a half here does anyone have any final thoughts on the record i'll let you go first dan i think it's sick (laughs) (laughs) andy do you remember the um i remember Unless I'm totally getting this wrong, the record release show for one of the albums was at the TLA. Oh, I remember it very well. What's your question? Was it this record or was it the next record? It was this record. And I actually was thinking of bringing this up just to sort of, I I hate when fucking people are like, things are different now than they were back then. (laughs) That's like the most fucking banal bullshit of all time. But... I did not go to that show because I was like 16 or something and like on vacation with my parents in Canada when it happened. But I knew that that was the record release show for this new like Ink and Dagger CD coming out. Right. So I, I remember like paying some a friend of mine to go to the show. He went anyway, but I remember giving him money to buy me a CD and then priority mail it to me on vacation so that I can hear it ASAP, <laughs> which he did do. <laughs> I, I still am grateful for that. But yeah, I, that was one of the only Ink and Dagger shows besides that Halloween show we mentioned up top that um, that I didn't see like um, in Philly. And I, I think it was with Blue Tip and Kerosene 454, right? I think that was the show. I don't, I don't remember who else played. Um, I remember that Don, you know, Don was ambitious and, you know, like had like, and I don't mean ambitious, like let's make a lot of money. I mean, like, like in terms of like what the scope of like music as art could be. And um, they had like uh, going, like, like a lot of audio, like visual stuff going on behind them at this show. Um, I, you know, I'm hope I'm wishing you were there because I'm like prone to not remembering things accurately or like <laughs> remembering one thing from one show that really happened in another show. But I'm pretty sure that they had a big sheet hanging behind them and they had like Philly graffiti writers like painting behind them while they were playing. Yeah, there there was a. Did I you think hear? That, did you hear about that? Yeah. I, well, I the story I had always heard was that they had a woman at the show like doing paintings like of the show that were sort of impressionistic um and she was like on the side of the stage and and i am pretty sure that she made like dozens of of little paintings during the show um Mm. because i think they also did that at stalag because i have this memory that a bunch of the paintings were just like up at stalag 13 for a really long time like on the walls and stuff um but it's funny. I don't remember of, the details, but I do remember someone painting behind them. Speaking of um, graffiti, though, like like for people unaware, like Ink and Dagger were kind of like in the graffiti world too in in um 
in Philly. And I was watching, yeah. have any of you guys seen this movie called The Watermelon Woman? No. Okay. No. It's it's this like 90s indie movie, um, like 90s indie gay cinema. It's like Criterion Collection, you know, mm. this woman made it. It takes place in Philadelphia. It's really, really, really great. And I uh, am embarrassed to say that I was not aware of it until like last year. Um, um, the movie's amazing. You should check it out. But um, shout out to Ambrose of Joint Custody in D.C. for pointing out to me that in the background of one of the scenes, you can see a Sean McCabe graffiti tag <laughs> in the background of one of the scenes, which like made my heart no. grow like 10 times bigger. That scene. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they had their hands in everything. I guess that's my final thought. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I, I knew Don pretty well. And we lived uh, basically around the corner from each other for a lot of the time. And Dacker was a band. And, um, you know, they had this perfect lineup when they, like, early on, like the lineup in the first 7-inch. And I had this sense uh, a lot of the time that Don was, there were a lot of members in the, throughout the history of the band. I felt like Don was continually trying to recreate, like, the, the magic and the quality of that first lineup. Um and it's it's one of the things that made the band interesting because it was always kind of morphing, but um, but you know it also sometimes just sounded like a really different band, in a way that I think like it's cool, but also you know might have been frustrating for people at the time. I remember you know, but you know, but Ryan was a great drummer, and I'm trying to, and I still can't remember like the the sequence of like where he fell in the order of drummers, but I don't know. It's kind of disjointed, but I just remember like how much well, the band was shifting and how how much it felt like a little bit different on each record. Not just that the writing was progressing, but also that the lineup was constantly changing. And so it's like a snapshot of a particular version of Ink and Dagger that's really compelling. Yeah, even reading that No Echo article with all the interviews, it's they don't really talk to too many i don't think they talk to too many musicians i think they talk more just the people who are around the scene right yeah so even then like the stories are all everyone's like recollections and like people who weren't directly in the band which i guess also kind of adds to the mystique of everything but a lot of those people were just as important to the band at the time you know they had like this whole crew of of extended family and stuff like people that would go on tour with them people that were at all their shows people that would you know that were like involved in the band in some way um and yeah so like all that stuff did did sort of contribute to like what the thing was um but as dan said like it was constantly shifting and a lot of times i mean it's probably like a lot of other kinds of music that aren't punk really where it's like you go to see certain people performing the music and you know they're variation on it's going to be different based on who it is and you know you would go and see them and be extra engaged in the show because because you were actually like listening kind of like what we were talking about before yeah and not to be you know not to draw i mean i think punk is is i mean we're we're still here because i think punk is something magic that transcends just musical style so i don't want to i feel like i'm at risk of diminishing it by saying this at the end but like i think of like um like the Rolling Stones did one song with Mary Clayton singing vo- singing vocals, right? And that that particular snapshot is like my favorite. Like that's 
that's the version of the Rolling Stones that I love. And that's the version of the Rolling Stones I want to hear and that I want to remember and think about. And like almost every, you know, like there's a million songs I could probably name of theirs, but like that's the song where like I'm a Rolling Stones fan. Like, and I, I don't know, like I, I think I think it's cool when when shifting lineups kind of create shifting definitions in a way that's you know both deliberate and accidental. I think that's a good point to end. Yeah. Uh, Thank you both so much for doing the show. Um, I didn't get a chance to mention at the top. Uh, you just released a lathe of the song Wolf. The, what sold out like basically immediately, right? Yeah. Yeah, because we made like five of them. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that impressive. I mean, I saw it two hours later and it was already gone. And I was like, oh, man, I would have got one. <laughs> but it's uh, in marketing. Instantly sold out everywhere. It was gone. <laughs> But the new song was for the American Hardcore Comp. So, like, uh, I guess, is there more plans for Open City? Or is, is something, is stuff in the works? Or is that just kind of a song sort of hanging around? No, we're we're um, we're um almost done our second LP. It'll be COVID kind of torpedoed our recording plans because, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, but it's been in some stage of completion for a long time. And um, hopefully it'll be done soon and we'll get it out to you yeah. all as soon as we possibly can. Um, there's some exciting... To give you an idea, I was looking through the calendar and I did like I finished the guitars, I think March 8th, 2020. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the bass tracks in February of 2020. Um, but that's not the point. The point is, is that it absolutely rips. Sorry. And um, <laughs> uh, it will be worth the wait, we promise. Um, and uh, yeah, this, this song um, is one of the songs we recorded during the, the sessions. I'm not sure if it'll actually be on the LP or not. I don't know if we figured that out, but it's, yeah, it's, I think we're all really psyched on how it's coming together. It's a ripper and, um, you know, it'll be, it'll be out as soon as we can get it out to y'all and then we'll play shows and all that stuff. Um, yeah. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. That's awesome. Um, where can everybody follow you online to make sure that we keep track of that? We're on all the things. The Open City, T H E E, um, dot com, on all the horrible social media platforms, <laughs> on Bandcamp, all that stuff. Email, you know. Um, you can find us walking around our respective cities looking clueless <laughs> and uncaffeinated most of the time. <laughs> Just really searching for caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, and last thing we always ask our guests is, are there any charities or nonprofits that you would like to bring some attention to? Um, I would like to um, bring attention to the uh, the Philadelphia Bail Fund, which is an important one. Um, in a, since I'm calling from the West Coast, I, I will give a shout out to Oakland, California's anti-police terror project. Um, raised ceremonies, raised a bunch of money for them, um, and uh, you know they're uh, they're doing good stuff fighting the pigs. <laughs> awesome! I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Thank thank you both so much for doing the show. It was yeah. a little tricky to get this scheduled, but uh, we finally got it done. Have you got a picture on how things work with us? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right thank you guys very much for having us yeah thank you